Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So, uh, without further ado, thanks for coming, and I'll hand it over to Craig. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a few quick announcements. I'm out of breath because I just lifted the heaviest thing I think I've ever listed. It's a huge uh, table making for coffee. I'll tell you about that in a second. First is quick show of hands. How many of you have read or bought uh, Slake Los Angeles before? Thank you. Thank you so much. For the people who have not, after the reading, tap the person, uh, somebody who just raised their hand and asked them why they read it. I'll tell you a little bit about why you should read it right now. Slake is a quarterly journal devoted to Los Angeles. Stories by Los Angeles writers set in Los Angeles or with the Los Angeles worldview. There's a lit scene happening in LA and we're right in the middle of it. We're so happy to have you here for that. Um, just a few uh, quick uh, news and notes. Single issues, including issue three, is here tonight. Very excited about that. Please uh, check that out. Um, also, uh, issues one and two are here for sale online. We offer subscriptions. For a few more uh, weeks, we're offering a summer subscription special. Uh, subscribe to issues three through six. And we'll send you issue one or two uh, scot-free, all for you. A bunch of other cool stuff for the shop, t-shirts and prints and all that stuff. Uh, we like to give away free things. If you buy a slate tonight, go outside, take a picture of yourself, Tweet it with us, our, uh, us in the title, or uh, post on our Facebook page. We'll send you a free uh, wall print. We have some uh, pretty amazing handcrafted uh, prints. We'll send those uh, uh, right to you. Um, more events coming up. We'll be at Vroman's on Sunday. And uh, uh, look out for next month, on August 27th, we're going to have our uh, issue release party at our new home at Atwater Crossing. Uh, very excited about that. Um, obligatory, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, come see me, and I'll put you on our, your email list so you can find out about cool events just like this. Uh, last but not least, before I hand it over to Joe and Lori, um, in the back there, you can't see them right now, we have the guys from uh, Handsome Roasters. They're a new uh, coffee roastery in town. They're working on an amazing spot in the Arts District downtown. This is, I think, only the second time they've offered their coffee in public in Los Angeles. So I know it's late, but just like Netflix and movie or something tonight, get a coffee, stay up late, and uh, you know, hang out and have some of that after the show. Um, without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, the two best editors in all of LA, Lori Ocho and Joe Donnelly. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Craig. So, uh, Joe and I just picked these up a few hours ago. So you are you you guys are literally the first people who get to um, to see these, buy these, um, and even you know our contributors are just getting getting a look at them now. So that's right. She's right. <laughs> um, I wish he said that all the time. Yeah, I, that might be the first time. Um, 
Also, you know how, if you've been here before, you know how stressed I get about whether or not people are eating the cookies and drinking the beer, drinking the wine. So please, before we get really started, if you don't have anything to eat or drink and you want something, let's do it. I spent a lot of money on this stuff. <laughs> not unmoved. What's the matter with you people? We like to throw down. This isn't just a reading, it's a throwdown. It's a hoot nanny. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, what? Warm pizza. Yeah. Uh, can we put this in there so we're not like going full on here? So the the theme of our third issue is uh, kind of you know we're we're fighting to keep this thing alive. So we decided war and peace would be a good theme, um, and there's a lot going on in the world that. Uh, but it really that refers to our relationship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke, forget it. <laughs> but, but what we love about the writers uh, that work with us is that they'll take a theme and come up with um, incredible things. So there are pieces that are literally about shooting wars and, and all that, but just some, um, but also um, just some great personal wars, um, urban wars. And uh, should we go into our first reader? Yes. Uh, or do you want to say anything else about yeah, it? Yeah, is that us or them? Oh, do should, you want to? Should we do that? We might, we, I think we might read the editor's letter because it kind of puts it into perspective. So We're excited to have this new issue out. It's been a while. so uh, We should say something, too. All the uh, artwork was done by one artist, um, except for the photography and paintings. All the, all the illustrations, such as, such as these, uh, well, also, the cover artist is here. I, I'm going to get to that. All right. <laughs> it's his girlfriend, too, but, but that's not So Michael Dopp, <laughs> Michael Dopp is the artist who did all, this, uh, all the artwork and iconography that goes with the books. And what we wanted to do is create a visual language um, that, uh, that's somewhat abstract, but uh, can it's somewhat abstract, but still relates to the stories and, and something you can come back to and, and um, glean more meaning and, and go deeper uh, into that. So, uh, and you know, here's the war and peace symbol. Um, and we're really proud of, uh, of the design and, and the, uh, we, I should mention our designer, Alex Bacon, isn't here, but he did an amazing job with, uh, with all this. And, uh, and we're really excited about the way it came out. It's, we think it's something pretty different, something unique. And I want to say, because you have a relationship. I know, but but this is not because it's this is not because it's their, you know your, your relationship. We've been staring at this no, my beautiful. relationship is because of that. Well, yeah, yeah. but um, we've been staring at this painting for a long time, and we knew right away that we wanted this for the cover of uh, the third issue. And uh, Ingrid Allen is here. Stand up and. So you can say other things, but I, I just I love this painting, and I'm really happy it's on the cover of our third issue. Yeah, that's pretty much says it all. All right, let's just go into the first reader. Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the um, uh, wars. Thank you all for coming. What's the state? <laughs> well, we we have a piece from um, Hillel Aaron. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And he is going to read a piece about um, a freeway here in Los Angeles. So um, we will just, hello, where are you? Why don't you come? This is like a wonderful piece of journalism and writing. So, thanks. 
Hi, thanks for coming. Can you hear me? Doesn't sound like there's a microphone, but um, thanks for coming. Thanks, guys, for doing this. Um, I wrote this article called The Last Freeway about the 105 freeway um, that uh, connects kind of downtown to the airport. And um, it, it was built in an era where, um, where no one was letting them build freeways anymore. They stopped the Beverly Hills Freeway. They stopped uh, this freeway that was supposed to run along the PCH. And um, this was basically the last freeway that slipped through the cracks, largely because it was, you know, in, in sort of South LA. And, um, but they had to basically bribe, uh, bribe the community with um, all these social, social programs in order to get it built. And um, the judge that was kind of largely responsible for this is this guy named um, Judge Harry Pragerson, who's uh, sits on the Ninth Circuit, um, and he's one of those liberal activist judges. Um, in a way, one of the last ones. He's uh, he's super old. I can't remember how old he is. But um, anyway, so I was just going to read the section where I went to see him. And uh, is it me, or does this keep sinking? Or am I growing? Okay. All right. I feel really awkward now, but uh, tighten it up. Can you uh, give me a hand here? Okay, great. This is not awkward at all. <laughs> I could do this. I could do. Uh, okay. It starts to slip. Off. All right, cool. I sit with Judge Pregerson in the kitchen of his office, and an anonymous-looking unit in an anonymous-looking building in Woodland Hills, across the street from one of those enormous Westfield shopping malls. Every half hour or so, one of his clerks comes in and gets a bowl of potato salad or a cup of coffee. The judge talks and talks. For five and a half hours, he talks. When I try to ask questions, he ignores them, or visibly annoyed, reluctantly answers as if he were being forced on an inconvenient detour. He talks with his eyes closed, his voice getting softer and softer, and at times he seems like he's drifting off to sleep. Pregerson has wild sagebrush eyes. He wears a pair of half-moon spectacles, a brown bomber jacket, cowboy boots, blue jeans, and a Stetson, making him look a bit like an old Charlton Heston, only with a blackberry clip to his canvas belt. He has a firm handshake and a serious demeanor. When I mention that he never seems to be smiling in any of his photographs, he deadpans, I'm a very serious guy. He's 87, there we go. Uh, or as he says with a wry smile, four score and seven years old. His memory is astonishing. He grew up in Boyle Heights and he remembers the name of the Japanese kid he carpooled with to UCLA in the 1930s. Though he can't remember the name of the driver who picked them up in a Model A coupe. He remembers the city before the freeway, before they pulled out the train tracks. He remembers how the city sounded. There was no freeway then, there were trains, and you could hear the trains whistle, you could hear the roosters crow, he says. At noon, the gas company downtown blew a whistle, you could hear it all over the city. That was their lunch break. We walked to school, we had the, we had the yellow car, but it cost three and a half cents, and why waste three and a half cents when you could walk? It took about an hour, but it was fun, because I'd walk with my friends. Pregerson was the only kid from his graduating class at Roosevelt High School to go to UCLA. He says it wasn't because he was smartest, just the only one whose family could afford the $25 per person tuition. In college, he joined the ROTC and eventually enlisted in the Marines. The worst thing that could happen was for the war to end before I could participate, he says. We were all anxious to go. I know it sounds strange. Times were different. There were 10 million people in, in the armed services. Everybody wanted to get involved. I took French because I thought I'd go to France like my father did and I could talk to the French girls, but I never got to France. The judge doesn't seem to like talking about the war. When I asked, when I asked how it was, he answers sarcastically, it was a great time. <laughs> I persist, 
I persist and finally he shuts the kitchen door and pulls down his pants. On each of his upper thighs there are two small pinpricks, like a needle might make on a sofa cushion. He starts talking. We went from Pavuvu to Okinawa. That was April 1st, 1945. That was the landing, he says. We had a battalion of a thousand men and then replacements. People would move in and be dead by five o'clock. It was it was it was 33 before before it was it was 33 before I got injured. I got hit by a dum-dum bullet, an explosive bullet. I'm lucky because of penicillin. I'm lucky because I lived. That's it, thanks. We'll start up here. See. I, this thing is attacking now. All right, this next man needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway because uh, what else am I doing here if I'm not doing that? Um, you've probably read him for years in the LA Weekly. He is a celebrated and noted film critic, but he's not just a film critic. He's a short story writer. He's a poet. He's a cultural uh, writer, cultural, cultural anthropologist, and he's a very, very, very smart and original thinker, and he's also a very good friend, and his name is Ernest Hardy, and he's going to read a poem. This is um, this is from a collection I'm working on of poetry and short stories that was actually inspired. But it was my reaction to the reaction um, from Prop 8, in which the Negroes were blamed for, you know, stalling or thwarting gay marriage. And I remember doing all the research and crunching all the numbers of the population and going, there aren't even enough Negroes in California to have any real political power anymore. It's interesting that we're sort of getting blamed for this. And I'd already been working on some stuff and that just sort of coalesced um, my vision for this book that I'm working on. So this poem was actually inspired by a conversation that I had with a friend. And um, can you guys hear me? Okay. And it's called More. I know what this is. Sharp corners and dull edges, slow press against the floor until lungs are crushed and eyes explode from sockets. A way is usually made, but it usually isn't easy. These are war-torn sights, the lives being lived around me. Ordinary folks and ordinary bodies going to and from, work, school, half-hearted lovers liaisons, wherever. Brutality assimilated into every aspect of their existences. You step over bodies, including your own. Empathy is rationed, even for yourself. You don't bother dodging shrapnel anymore. It was easier just to lose the fear of blood and scarring. You walk headlong towards slow bullets, press yourself into them, absorb them and push them deeper with a forefinger. He got dressed slowly, a forced smile tentatively playing on his thick, cracked lips. I might not be the prettiest motherfucker you ever fucked with, he said, a strange attempt at self-deprecation. But I know I'm the ugliest. He chuckled half-heartedly. No, I said quietly, you're not. I wouldn't give him what he instinctively knew to be his and true, that I'd only sucked his dick and lay on my stomach for him because he was so hideous, and I struggled to keep from vomiting the entire time. He softly closed the door behind him. I got up and changed the sheets and slept on the sofa anyway. Thanks, Ernest. 
Um, our next reader is Paul Sabrizi. And um, Paul is someone I kept running across uh, at the LA Film Festival. He's a programmer there. And uh, so film is something very close to Paul. Um, he writes screenplays, but also runs the Sexy Lake Writers Group um, and has had an interesting life. I, I want to ask you about Italy sometime and uh, where he grew up. So Paul Sabrizi. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe and Lori, for having me in this. Um, this is actually the first piece that I've had published, so it's uh, super exciting for me to be part of, uh, of this issue of Slake. Um, this piece that I wrote is called Goddardamarang, and it's about war. It's about the war for the soul of Silver Lake, which um, has already been lost, by the way. And um, this is... Um, this is part of it. It's um, the characters. This is kind of the middle. Um, the characters that are already have already been introduced are Ian, who is kind of a Silver Lake local royalty. He used to be in a um, a sort of locally successful rock group, and uh, and Ekaterina, who's um, an ex girlfriend of his, and they've they've just gone to pick up another ex girlfriend uh, named Sherry. Um, okay. You look fine, Sherry. You always look the same, said, said Ian. Now, come on, you're boring me. Get in. Oh, I'm sorry, they've, they've gone to pick her up at, at her house. He hypnotized her with a smile he invented on the spot. We're getting gelato. Sherry frowned, then she seemed to leave her own body and floated into the back seat. Ekaterina felt a flush of self-confidence. Ian never spoke to her that way. Lock your door, said Ian. Ekaterina felt her anus clench, wishing Ian, wishing, wishing Ian would command her to do things. Ian and Ekaterina started to talk again, and Sherry tried to focus on their words, but a fantasy took over, where she and Ian were driving alone through the hills of Napa Valley, except she wasn't exactly herself, more like a hybrid of herself and Ekaterina. Ian was wearing Armani Exchange, and he was younger and gentler. She was driving and in control. Ian kept asking her to pull over, and she would snap back at him. We're not stopping. Get over it. Ian began to pull off his shirt, and though she tried to keep her eyes on the road, she couldn't help but notice. He had enormous, round, milky biceps, sitting high and proud like a woman's breasts. His left arm had an unfinished tattoo, an inter intricate net of delicate black lines. His chest was hairless and blindingly white, and reached up nearly to his chin. It was Jackson Pollocked with a pair of aggressively pink nipples that looked like they'd been smeared with Vaseline. His hair was getting thick and curly and growing down to his shoulders. He lifted his arms and interlaced his hands behind his head, revealing two thick and unruly strips of underarm hair, damp, damp and musky. The scent, combined with some powerful cologne, wafted over to Sherry, making her dizzy, and she pulled onto a side road. Earth to Sherry, said real life Ekaterina. I was listening, said Sherry. You want fig, asked Ian, or pistachio? Sherry tried hard to focus, but Ian's eyes looking into hers sent her back into the fantasy. Um, 
In it, they had gotten out of the car, and his scent was sapping her strength. She wanted to scream at him to go away, but her voice was gone. And now Ian's hair was nearly down to his waist, and he had stripped down to a gold lame speedo and matching knee-high boots. And he picked her up off her feet. He was rough and awkward, and he was afraid. She was afraid he might drop her. But then, "Don't Be Cruel" by Elvis was playing, and they were fifties dancing in some rundown residential neighborhood with chain-link fences and dried-up lawns. And Ian was walking and spinning her around himself and through his legs and high up in the air. He threw her and she went flying backwards, sure she was going to get badly hurt. Two old men in dirty tank tops playing cards at a plastic table looked up at her and smiled. She fell into a bouncy castle. Ian stood over her like some kind of cartoon superhero. Do whatever you want with me, she said. I'm yours completely. I just want to bounce, said Ian. This excited Sherry, and though ashamed of her body, she stripped naked. Ian poured vegetable oil on the floor, and she worried about her clothes. But then they were bouncing, naked, and Ian had a heart on that hurt when she fell on it. And they kept bouncing and bouncing and having orgasms expressed as laughter. You're so quiet, said Ekaterina. Sherry became aware of holding a double scoop of orange zest mascarpone in a sugar cone. She quickly bit, bit into it with her lips and tongue. A first impression of fruit was quickly flooded with profoundly creamy and dense milk fat, sweet but barely so. She lifted her eyes at the same moment as Ian, who was having the Sicilian pistachio, and they heightened their druggy pleasure by taking in each other's beauty, drifting into hypnosis. Ian loved Sherry in that moment, her power to take him into an altered state. Fuck your mother, screeched Katerina. She had spilled Venezuelan chocolate down the front of her vintage Journey t-shirt. Sherry's knee jerked and hit the bottom of the metal table hard. She bent over in pain, her eyes scrunched up and her mouth silently stretched open. Ian never knew how to deal with her. She had no tolerance for pain and could end up lost in it for hours or days. Are you okay, asked Katerina, wrinkling her nose. She grabbed a napkin, it, licked it, and dabbed at the mess on her t-shirt. Thank you. Who's next? Huh? Oh. Um, so we should uh, mention that our uh, assistant art director and production manager and, and woman who basically does everything, Anne McCadden. Where is Anne? And and she's over here. Yeah, she's she's awesome. Um, and she made she decorated brownies and uh, so that replicate some of the artwork in here, which goes to show you how complicated the artwork is. Yeah. So if you don't have any, and who's who who we have a mountain of Takati over here. <laughs> Come on, let's do it. Do it. <laughs> no? All right. Um, our next reader, what? Oh, you're going to do the mic? Oh, we're going to change out the mic. There you go. All right, intermission's over. Take your seats. Don't be so rude. No, seriously. Everybody good? Anybody try the coffee yet? Any good? The, the coffee's outstanding. All right, we're going to get started again here. Um, our next, uh, our next reader is uh, what? The, 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 don't let me in. Whenever you're ready. Seriously, Ernest. <laughs> um, 
Our next reader is a very talented young lady. Um, she, I think she, yeah, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she came into our office sometime uh, during the process of uh, making the second issue, this one, and uh, she uh, showed us some of her art, and I think she was supposed to be, like, reading submissions or something. Is that right? And then uh, we, we, needed a, we needed some art to go with um, Rachel Resnick's piece called Natural Born Butcher, which is a very good piece in the second issue. Um, and we had we had been sort of assigning uh, different artists to different uh, writers for this issue, and uh, we uh, somehow nothing was working out with the Rachel Resnick thing. So we're like, "Hey, Lucy, can you uh, just sit down there and do something?" And this is what she came up with, you know, and it was perfect. So, and we even, I think we even made a print out of it. So it's really great. And she also happens to be a very talented young writer and poet, and she's gonna come up and read her poem. South of Alvarado, yes. I was is north or south? Right. Here's Lucy Engelman. I got a glass of wine, just so you know. So, um, let's see if I can find it. I here it is. I moved. This is. The artwork. Oh, this is this is this is the page. I'll speak into it. Um, <laughs> I moved to Los Angeles almost a year ago, and the first weekend that I moved here, I drove out. I borrowed my roommate's car, and I drove out to somewhere in Culver City to uh, look at a used car lot to try to buy a car for myself, and I took the. Um, topical streets because I was so afraid of the freeway and <laughs> someone else is having a conversation that's fun um, but uh, it was early in the morning and I stopped at a donut shop and I was looking through this like pile of newspapers and one of them had a profile of a new literary magazine in Los Angeles that was about print and not being on the internet and I'm kind of a Luddite and I don't I don't have a Facebook and I'm not really into the internet and I was like oh, amazing amazing so that morning I just kind of got this like this is the kind of um, the kind of journal that I would dream of being a part of in any capacity whether it's working to make it happen or being in it which is such an immense honor and I'm really grateful so thank you, and I will read this poem um, that hopefully is not too long. So it's called "Somewhere South of North Alvarado." It's all. Yeah. He came from Oregon way back before he knew curiosity or ransom. Lightly he traced tools in the sand lots, wiped broad sweat openly. But then it changed. He saw sweet water at night and sang lullabies to blackbirds, even started speaking languages not yet heard. These times had been long past in the waning. Yet ever so slightly he turned, looked over his shoulder, seeing not the brassy billboards glowing, but instead the yawning entrance to the freeway. Waltzing towards it, he disappeared. Thank you. Thank you.
I, I will show the page for our next reader also because uh, one of the things we really um, work on is showing poetry in a way that isn't just off in the corners of a bo or the bottom of a page on a magazine where you're not paying attention to it. So this um, John Waldman is our next reader and, and this is um, how we're showing his poem and we we want we want you to stop and 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 read people's poems. And John is a um, uh, a, a often uh, he's uh, been published in many different uh, journals uh, for his poetry. But he also teaches fifth and sixth grade um, to, uh, writing there at uh, PS One in Santa Monica. And he has uh, something of a poetry envelope project that has been used in the New York City school system. And uh, we've just, we loved looking at this page while we were, this is one of my favorite pages um, that we were, we were working on during the whole process. So, John Waldman. Greetings. So I think it must be almost exactly a year ago that I brought my 13-year-old son, Lewis to Bergamont Station to the launch party for Slake. So happy birthday. It's got to be about a year. And um, Lewis is actually impressed that I'm here tonight. And since the number of things that I do that don't make him absolutely cringe and shame and disgust um, have been whittled down to a precious few, um, uh, I think this is a legitimate event. So. This poem's called A Man's Rebaptism in a Town Called Jesus Cares. And it's, it draws a line from Rantoul, Illinois, to San Antonio, Texas, to Los Angeles, California. I moved here at my daughter's urging to spend my remaining days living a churchgoer's life. Here, where dawn is a wicker couch, shod in boiled wool slippers, where the purple martins and Mexican fruit bats loiter in octagonal homes, perched on a single stilt in each yard. Within the week of my arrival, a man from the Papa Lock changed my flat when the sidewall on one of my good years split like the peel on an ornamental orange. On my way home, I saw my son-in-law teetering on the porch of Billy's Bar, or was it La Cantina, surveying the ragged lawn like a shepherd. At my daughter's urging, I am here to tie up the strings on a life of advocacy, outrage, infidelity, and dereliction to live at half-mast under an empty billboard on a porch of green metal chairs and a monthly recipe of medication costing the same as the mortgage twofold. In this grave time, that is no time for sleep, that is no time for the ledger of one's life to be rendered illegible, I stare like the boy who saw a thousand eclipses projected on the sidewalk when the light from a single passing scattered through a jigsaw of cedar leaves or close my eyes to count the paper boats of my dreams drifting like moths 
on a surface of blue light. Thank you. I'm going to sneak in one more poem, and I actually I brought it to read. Um, I thought my friend John Albert might show up here tonight. I don't think he's here, but John um, has pieces in the first two, two great pieces in the first two issues of Slake. And John, um, I, I think I make cameos in a lot of his writing, and John makes cameos in a lot of mine. And um, so anyway, this is for John, but he's not here, so it's for you instead. It's called Public Image. In a photo torn and saved from the Los Angeles Times, 25 years ago, when Johnny Rotten returned as John Lydon to the Olympic Auditorium, the old boxing mecca shouldered up against the San Bernardino Freeway. A crowd scene, heads craning stage bound. One fan, lower right in the frame, facing the viewer's room. Bleached hair plummeting across one eye, leaving the other to focus on its own. The girlfriend, future baroness, tucked into his ribs, nodding off, while public image battered out staccato obituaries to the quivering-lipped boys last seen singing crystal ships at Morrison's Parisian grave. In the outskirts of the blurred meringue, a history professor who breaks down each time he teaches the Holocaust attends his first rock and roll show there to decode the uttering of the greatest generation's progeny. He encounters the boy and girl, sees the former is a colleague's runaway son. Before returned recognition, he beats a retreat away from the intersecting ellipses into a Nikon's flash pop. Can he say now, while picking brittle wasps from the chambers of their fallen nest, if they were masqueraders, trailblazers, knuckleheads, or penitential brothers scorched by devotion in the maelstrom of Keith Levine's howling guitar. Thank you. John, have you, have you told John Albert how you feel about him? I mean, how you really feel about him? <laughs> yeah. You know what I always say, F John Albert. Yeah. F John Albert. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, um, and I do mean that, by the way. Uh, our, I think it's, is this our last reader? Yep. Um, our last reader, certainly not our least reader, uh, his name is James Greer, and uh, he's one of the really, really, really great young novelists that um, actually keep me believing in the form. Uh, it's really hard to find really great novels these days. Um, they all seem to come from the same writing program or something, but uh, <laughs> thank you. 
<laughs> You're from Pittsburgh too? Um, anyway, uh, James's uh, first uh, novel was a failure, and his second one was Artificial Light, and uh, I've read them both, and they're really amazing, and he's one of a, a handful of um, great young novelists that we're proud to feature, uh, including Patrick DeWitt, uh, whose uh, novel Sisters, Brothers, I highly recommend, and there's an excerpt of it in Slake 3, and Joseph Matson, who uh, uh, Empty the Sun uh, came out not long ago and he's working on a couple novels and he's in uh, both our second and third issues but if you ever feel like there's nothing there's no real exciting young writers out, out there anymore doing uh, fiction I think uh, these guys will change your mind and here's one of them, James Greer Thanks Joe Th uh, Thanks Joe and Lori, this is a this is a this is a fragment uh, from my uh, from my next novel, um, which is um, it doesn't have a, it has a title, but it's a secret. Uh, it's about a lot of it. This part this part is about roses. See, I can take as long as I want because I'm last, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You guys are stuck. It's actually a it's a really short excerpt. Don't, uh, don't worry. Um, uh, it's um, uh, for some reason I got upset. I used to play in this uh, this rock band called uh, Guided by Voices, and uh, one time we were on tour um, with this other band, um, and the and the girl from the band, his name was Sean, kind of a nice girl, but uh, crazy as a loon. Um, uh, I remember one time, completely out of nowhere, she talked about how she hated roses, and I thought, like, who hates roses? I mean, how do you, why do you, I mean, I understand not liking roses, but hating roses. It's like, it's like my other friend who, who hates, not only hates coffee, but hates the smell of coffee. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's weird. He's from Scotland. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that explains it. Any, in any case, this is a this is an excerpt, and it has a lot to do with um, my uh, subsequent uh, sort of I start, uh, gradual obsession with roses. Um, I, I, that I think the the seed um, was planted um, by that that one weird uh, comment that uh, that that girl made. This is called "In Bloom," which which you know that's the hook. You know the title. It's like it's like that's a Nirvana song and. Uh, we, uh, we thought that you know, like people think, oh, that's a Nirvana song, you know, like it'll be about like rock and roll or something. It's not, <clears throat> and it goes like this. It's in, uh, it's in, it's in uh, the key of C uh, sharp minor. Even impatient people won't get bored watching the damask rose, and sick people will find its blossoms cheering. The location of the flower depends on where you are physically and the politics of self-destruction. When Rutledge Root stood alone and smoking in the middle of the desolate battlefield, he could not see the parts of bodies or writhing and groaning recently human forms. He could not see or hear 
anything, in fact, blind from the blood caked over his eyes and deaf from the cannon's shout. But he could see in his mind the Rosa Damascena he had grown in a small clay pot on his windowsill earlier that year. Who was Rutledge Root kidding? That rose was long bloomed and the clay pot shattered or consumed by fire when enemy troops ravaged the town near six months ago. And yet, if a thing can be held in the mind and regarded with precision, passionately held by force of will as if the eye were present, he had been taught, then no separate reality existed which could overthrow the one so constructed. And what you wouldn't do to get there, the carnage before you, a drop of elderberry jam on a snowy mountain top. Rutledge Root, you're a killer. Probably makes you feel better to say warrior, soldier, but that's a sham. The roses you seek, nothing will stand in your way. No one can or will. You start wars and you end them, all for the sake of a rose. More precisely, for the adder that can be obtained by steam distillation in copper tubs of crushed petals and sepals, the olive green malodorous oil from roses harvested before dawn and distilled the same day. After which, what happens? More roses grow. You can't stop them from growing. When they grow, you go after them and slaughter anyone who stands in your way. Everybody wants my blood. The helicopters shooting diamonds above the low hills at night, the Russian nurses, the white coats, the sloppy sailors with buckets of fish guts preening on the wharf. Or perhaps I should say, there's no one who does not want my blood. That's why I'm covered in bruises, from needles, from constant poking with needles. That's why I'm so bloody anemic. Rutledge Root has pig snot for brains. What runs through his arteries I wouldn't even guess, but nothing good, nothing pure. Once I saw him pricked with a small sword and something olive green spurted from the wound. I will admit that I wounded him. For what reason he does the ravaging and so forth? For what reason at all? The countryside is stupid, infested with stupidities, plied every day with more stupidities through various means, some popular and open and free. Rutledge Root knows all that, but he doesn't care a damn except for the well-being of his roses. In the meantime, I'm running short of blood and there are only so many stupidities I can reasonably stand. I need to stop Rutledge Root. Well, well, not stop him, but instead turn his attention to the stupidities, from the, the roses to the stupidities, which are like roses, in that there is no end to their blooming. But someone like Rutledge Root, but well, not someone like him, because, but him, and him only, because there's, there's no one like Rutledge Root, should his warlike spirit be properly directed, or better put, focused, he could stop the stupidities could attack them with his, his curved sword. There's an exact word for the type of sword that Rutledge Root uses. Perhaps the word is scimitar, perhaps not. And decollate the stupidities, blood spurting in rufous fountains over land and sea and high into the oxygenated sky past gravity's pull through the atmosphere and gathered in Robbie, sorry, ruby globules by the flexibly inflexible rules of physics floating forever in vast space. But a man who bends his mind to roses is not easily swayed. Il n'y existe pas un homme qui can resist the lure of botany. 
the sweetest science, super succulent and dangerous to the sanity. Ja'alskerde spoke Karl the father, who, contrary to expectations, lived a mostly placid and self-satisfied life, crowned with crowns, and in additions, and in addition, had interests outside botany, extending even to anthropology, the science of cartoons. One does not contradict the other, existence and non-existence. These are complementary ideas, even necessary ideas, albeit entirely beside the point of what Rutledge Root would call bleeding. Everything about Root was a hybrid. The man himself, his, his ridiculous name, blends seeds of meaning and matter into new, unimproved forms because he can't leave well enough alone. And yet he searches restlessly for a perfection in nature that he cannot find in his artifice, will kill anything that tries to block the pursuit of his silly blooms. In this way, death came to our town. Thanks. I will never speak again. <laughs> yeah. Except to say. Except to say. Well, we've got some coffee back there um, from some handsome men in a van, although the van broke down. And just for you, they came in a U-Haul. So the coffee is delicious. You should go get some. Well, there you. you go. Well Thank worth you. it. And if you're, if coffee's not your thing, we also have lots of beer. beer and wine and cookies and brownies. But um, also mostly just want to say thank you guys for coming and, and paying attention and uh, enjoying yourselves, I think, and supporting this. Because, frankly, I'm, I'm going to be honest, th it's not easy. This isn't easy. And uh, when you guys come here and show up and, and support us and, and, and enjoy yourselves and read and get into it and support the writers, it really means a lot to us and it, it makes it, you know, it reminds us of why we're doing it. So. Thank you very much. And August 27th, we're, we're going to throw a party and we want to invite you all. Um, this is, it'll be to celebrate uh, this issue and it'll be at our new um, office space and it's got a big stage, there'll be music and it's uh, August 27th at ATX in Atwater. It's a party, yeah. Thank you very much and uh, happy birthday Slake. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.